Good. Tonight I would like to uh, follow on from where Andrea left off a few days ago when she spoke of Dukkha and uh, touched on the four truths. And I would like to uh, ponder and contemplate um, on the theme of those truths or um, whatever they may be. There is some doubt whether that word truth actually was in the first manuscripts. Uh, there are people who believe and oh, quite make a convincing case that the term truth is not just misleading but actually wasn't there in the very early uh, uh, texts, but is a later um, editorial addition, which uh, may put some question marks behind a very well-established uh, doctrine. Many years ago, when I lived in England as a monk, the religious education in England became open and it was possible that other things than Christianity could be taught in religious education in schools. So there were uh, a number of inquiries made in Buddhist monasteries, in those few Buddhist monasteries, whether uh, what teachers needed to do to teach Buddhism in schools, in normal schools. So, and without the help uh, of, I suspect, many Buddhists, a lot of books came on the market and made their way into the schools. And all of these books, they said quite gruesome things about Buddhism. One of them, I remember I opened it and saw the, the four truths of the Buddhists. And the first truth was all life is evil. <laughs> so the notion of a truth and the notion of uh, suffering, pain, dukkha, as a, uh, a moral statement, uh, I think, was one of the more wild contortions of, of this teaching. If I look uh, into the history of texts and how the Buddha referred to himself, then it is there from very early on that he referred to himself as a teacher, but also as a surgeon. He was a healer. Yeah. All Buddhist tradition, right up from the Sutta Nipata, where the Buddha says, I am, I am the supreme surgeon, uh, down to Tibetan Sanjay Menla practice, where you have a medicine Buddha, and along the Indian history, where you have something like the Baisaja Guru, the medicine teacher. Um, you have the repeated metaphor of a Buddha as a therapist, the Buddha as a healer, the Buddha as a surgeon. Uh, somebody who is capable of dispensing the balm for the ills of the world. And it does not surprise that if you look at uh, his teaching of the Four Truths, that in fact his teaching of the Four Truths very much resembles the approach of a doctor. Yeah. So the first of the truth speaks of pain, it speaks of e unease, it speaks of, of forms of lack, forms of want, or just plain suffering. And that could be compared to the anamnesis, the medical history of somebody. You know, somebody comes and says, it hurts. You know, that's generally our first step. When it hurts, we go and look for health. We look for health and we look for help to gain that or regain that 
health. If we don't do this, much is lost already. If we don't go for help, and if we don't acknowledge the degree of suffering or pain, the discomfort we're in, we are unlikely to obtain such help. So the first step, the first of those truths, quite clearly seems to deal with the phenomenology of pain, of suffering, of unease. And uh, I think it is obvious that the anamnesis of a doctor uh, corresponds to the account of suffering that we are all touched by. The second step we could compare to a, diagno a diagnosis. Uh, the Buddha's second truth speaks of the arising of pain, that which leads to the arising of pain. The texts tell us this is craving, thirst. We have to assume this is a shortcut. It is not immediately apparent why craving should lead to death. Yeah? If we look at the standard definitions of suffering, of dukkha, then we have all kinds of things in there. We have things in there like pain, not getting what we want, being separated from loved ones, being united with uh, not loved ones, um, old age, sickness, death. In short, uh, all grasping and identification with the five aspects of our experience. Now, it is not apparently, uh, immediately apparent uh, to, to me why desire and craving of such kind should lead to death. In fact, I have a great suspicion, even if I have gone beyond craving, I shall still die. Yeah. Um, I can be as virtuous as a parsley shrub and probably still have uh, to suffer old age sickness and death. I have a profound suspicion in that direction. So it is not immediately apparent while desire alone should cause old age sickness and death. Buddhists obviously uh, traditionally take to uh, the leger de main that uh, you have to think in multiple lifetimes for this to make sense. So the craving in previous lifetimes has led to the birth in this lifetime and because I have a human body here I will uh, experience the suffering, the illness, and the death of that human body, which one can do. However, I prefer to take tanha in the second of the truth uh, to be more of a shortcut for um, um, the next step, which is generally connected with tanha, which is grasping, which is attachment, which is identification and holding on to. So that part of the Buddhist teaching we can easily uh, map onto the approach of the doctor when he looks for a diagnostic. He looks, what is the cause of this condition? Is it due to an accident? Is it due to diet? Is it due to climate? Is it an infection? Is it a virus? Yeah? So the Buddha asks this question and comes to the conclusion that uh, generally we have something to do with our own suffering. Generally, there is a part that can be traced back to our own doing or our own lack of doing things. Uh, a crucial element in there is what he calls desire, and this desire is rather broader than Western psychology would like us to believe. The first part of it is fairly straightforward. It's the desire for experience. It's things we like to taste, touch, feel, smell, think of. Consider there's a sixth sense in Buddhist psychology which 
has as sense objects, thoughts and concepts, images, uh, constructs of mind. And uh, this aspect of desire, these are things we can desire or we can crave for, is fairly obvious. The second aspect of that tanha, called bhava tanha, is a little less obvious. It's, it's a, we take a psychological position of lack or want and say, as things are now is not good enough. More needs to come. It needs to be improved. It needs to be uh, maximized. It needs to be uh, somehow varied. So the second type of desire does not refer to sensory experience. It does refer to abstract qualities. Now these abstract qualities sound a lot less abstract if I start naming them. Things like love, recognition, power, control, safety, fame. Those are things we uh, cannot immediately experience with our senses. And yet, I would be assuming that you're agreeing with me that we can do a lot to obtain these things. Much of our motivation derives from obtaining these qualities. So that second type of desire generally takes the position that as I am now is not good enough, not famous enough, safe enough, rich enough, loved enough, recognized enough, appreciated enough, enough in control. Already that part goes slightly beyond uh, the Western psychological notion of desire. The third one is completely off the map uh, in terms of Western psychology. And Vibhavatanha means this is the distinct wish that specific aspects of my experience disappear, be gone, be done with. Um, it's the wish that something, that I be rid of something. When the second type of desire took the position of not enough, the third type of desire takes the position of too much. You know, this needs to be gotten rid of. I need to be going, get, getting rid of my anger. I need to be getting rid of her. I need to be getting rid of all that rubbish in my place. I need to be getting rid of my, chaot my chaotic approach to administration. So it is a very distinct wish that something that is present in my experience, outer or inner, that this be gone. This can be distinguished from aversion. Yeah? Aversion is non-specific. Yeah? Once it is triggered, when the mind is aversed, uh, it is kind of broad-spectrum aversed. Yeah? Once the aversion is triggered, the whole mind is soured. So th the third type of desire uh, is contrary to broad-spectrum aversion, is very highly specific. Yeah? I want to get rid of this. It is the wish that something be gone, annihilated, out of my sight, locked up, um, simply no longer existent. So these types of desire are quite strong and you'll probably agree with me that the notion of desire in English language does not quite cover the breadth of this whole program. The third of the Buddhist teaching speaks what would be the equivalent in the doctor's approach of a prognosis. 
The third step, namely that things can cease, that that, that suffering can completely cease, is the prognosis. In the case of the Buddha, the prognosis is good. Yeah, sometimes um, prognosis is not good. So, sometimes we, we don't need to do things for the prognosis to become true. You know, common cold, you can't really do much about the common cold. You know? Medicine, as much as it has given us, can't really cure a common cold. It can help us to allay some of its side effects, clear your sinuses a little bit, take a paracet and lower the headache. But basically, it cannot be cured. It just works its way through your system, and then you either die or you get better. Many things actually do uh, benefit from appropriate treatment. And that's where the fourth of the truth comes in. The fourth of the truth uh, could be equated with the therapy. The therapeutic aspect of Buddhist teaching, which is what compassionate doctors do. They don't just give you a diagnosis and tell you exactly what you have in Latin. Uh, they actually do something to help you. That's the idea of the doctor, not just that you know what you have, but also uh, that you can be possibly helped. If they can help you, uh, it's always nice to actually receive some specific uh, medication or dietary uh, uh, ideas, what you could change, or he writes you a paper that uh, allows you to go to your employer and get a cure for something, get a um, visit to a place with good air or Sea, sea air and iodine, uh, iodinized air uh, close to the seaside or something like that. Or a very um, distinct prescription of something you should do. So it's not difficult to see that the approach the Buddha takes in his four truths, in fact, are not so much truth. They are not proposition. That's one of the big misunderstandings. The Four Noble Truths, as they are commonly called, are not actually propositions. They don't make sense as propositions, to be honest with you. Uh, they don't make sense as something to be believed in. Um, if you believe in, the, in those Four Truths, you don't actually derive much benefit. Uh, one of my teachers used to say, it is as if you're locked up, incarcerated, and somebody slips you the key to the, to the door to your cell and you gratefully receive it, you pick it up with trembling hands and you put it on a nail on the wall and you start worshipping it, bowing to it and you eternally grateful that you have the key that leads you into the freedom yeah. instead of actually using the thing putting it into the lock, turning it, opening the gate and going into freedom so the, the power of this teaching. The Buddha, as you probably know, calls it the elephant's footprint. Uh, he says, like, the elephant's footprint can encompass the footprints of all other animals because it is of that size that the footprints of other animals fit into it. The elephant's footprint is something like um, very high aerial photography. You know, if you look at 
differing layers in Buddhist teaching. And you see um, the, the grain of these teachings change. So the, the four truths are a teaching that comes from very, very high. That means it's mapped fairly broadly. You know? All the other teachings fit into the teachings of the four truths. Uh, like a very, very high flying plane in those days when aerial photography was still necessary for maps, when we didn't have GPS and satellites. Um, if you allow me as a person of the 20th century to rely on 20th century imagery. And in those days, you know, the high flying and the low flying planes, they were making images and then they were mapping them gradually and establishing the topography of an area. So the principle of a very high flying teaching is what the Buddha meant with the elephant's footprint. The elephant's footprint is the idiom you use for high-flying planes in uh, two and a half millennia ago. So this teaching is considered to be peculiar to Buddhas. That's the wording. The Buddha does not teach that straight away. You know, if you look at, uh, through the text, the Buddha does only teach that teaching that he says, I haven't invented, he says, that is peculiar to all Buddhas. This teaching of the Four Truths is only being taught when he feels that his audience is captive enough and is prepared enough with some other teachings. Things about renunciation, about the danger of sense pleasures, about karma, about rebirth, um, about um, health, wholesome and unwholesome things. There's a whole number of teachings the Buddha deems to be important before the teaching of the Four Truths actually can percolate. So we have the Buddha as an archetypal healer, therapist, surgeon, uh, dispensing a medicine for the ill of dukkha, for the ill of that which is hard to bear. The word dukkha, by the way, has a long history and it uh, do is something that is tight, narrow, dirty, and ordinary. And ka is a term for space. So dukkha is not the thing that happens to us. It's not the objective experience or event. Dukkha is the space the mind goes into when it is touched by something it doesn't want or it experiences as painful. So this is an important point. Dukkha is not an objective um, mishap. Dukkha is the space we go into when we are touched by things that are not flattering, that are painful, or that are counter to our expectations or wishes. So it is not difficult to see how the Buddha has come to be a doctor, or a surgeon, or a therapist, or the archetype of all these, when we see his four truths basically being less than truth, but approaches. Yeah. He approaches these, uh, the human existence with uh, a kind of four-pronged um, strategy, if you so want. He asks, does it hurt? He asks, what does it hinge on, what hurts? He asks, um, can it be changed? Can it be uh, brought to an end? And he asks, how can it be brought to an end? Yeah. If we wanted to look at this 
teachings of the Four Truths uh, in terms of how we can live with this or how we can apply this, then we would probably end up with something, um, an English monk who has lived in the 60s in Sri Lanka uh, famously wrote to one of his disciples. He said, you have to understand the Four Noble Truths, the teaching of the Four Noble Truths as a description of life rather than as proposition or as capital T truth. You have to understand the, these uh, uh, Arya Satchas, you have to understand them as, um, as appeals. You know? Rather like Alice, uh, as in Alice in Wonderland, where she finds a bottle. And the bottle doesn't say what it contains, it says what she should do with it, namely, drink me. You know? That's what it says on the label. So we should take the we should take those four truths as appeals, as pledges, or even as commands to perform a particular task. Rather than believing this truth, we should perform the task of um, drinking the medicine. Now, in the case of the first truth, the uh, activity verb would be uh, understand me absolutely. There is suffering, understand me absolutely, says suffering. That's what it says on the first bottle. On the bottle for the second truth, it would say, give me up completely. The arising of suffering due to tanha, to thirst, craving, uh, is something that can be abandoned and that should be abandoned. So give me up, that's what it says on the second bottle. On the third bottle, that's the truth of Niroda Satcha, which says there is a possibility for suffering to be allayed. And on the bottle it says, realize me. Yeah? This has to be realized. On the fourth bottle, the bottle that contains all the medicine of the Eightfold Path, it says, develop me, cultivate me. So we have an appeal we have to think of these truths, A, as descriptions of, of, of our existential condition, and B, if you want to make use of this, rather than just become existentialist and say, well, yeah, la dernière sibiche, another one, just, we have to do something about this. And if we want to do something about this, we do well if we follow what it says on the bottle. I haven't invented that. These four verbs they do occur right in the first sermon of the Buddha, where the Buddha speaks of the 12 aspects of those four truths and delineates for every of those truths three stages. And there is a crucial verb in there. Uh, the first stage is the, the, the bleak acknowledgement. In the case of the first truth, it says there is suffering. Yeah. Full stop. Yeah. It's happening. It's happening to me. It's happening now. I can't cheat my way out of. I can fudge a little, I can postpone a little, I can distract, I can numb, I can dissociate, but it's still happening. Yeah? It's not going to go away. I'm embarked, basically. And that has to be understood. The crucial verb in there is called parinyayati, which is a uh, construction. I wouldn't even be quite sure how to translate that into English. Um, um, it says this is something to be done. Yeah? That's what the grammatical function of that 
participle is. It's, it's something to be done. And the thing to be done is understanding. You know? Complete, absolute understanding of dukkha as an existential condition. What I've said is on the second bottle, uh, give me up. It also says already in the Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta, in the Buddha's famous first sermon, um, given in Sarnath. Uh, for the second truth, it says, Pahataba, um, which means this is something to be given up. Yeah. That which is giving rise to suffering, this has to be given up. So the label on the second bottle is, give me up. The, the key term, the key verb for the third truth, what has to be done with that third truth, is to be realized, satchikataba, to be made real, to be put into reality. And for the fourth of those teachings, we have as the key verb, bhavetaba, which means this has to be cultivated, this has to be developed. That's where the word bhavana comes from. Uh, one of the verbs we try, um, we have this funny English word called meditation. Um, yeah, meditation is a funny word for what the Buddha meant with cultivation or development, because meditation, as some of you may know, comes from the Benedictine tradition, or the meditatio is, this, is the second part of a tripartite type of practice. The first one is to, the lectio, to read. The second one is the meditatio, to think deeply in cognitive terms. And then the third one would be the contemplatio, to, uh, in non-discursive terms, acquaint oneself with uh, particular content. Yeah. So, for some strange reason, I have never quite understood the term meditation, which is explicitly reflective and cognitive, uh, has been used for Buddhist meditation, which is, as you famously know, precisely not that. You know, ideally, it's not cognitive and reflective, but it is, uh, in a contemplative way, deeply intuitive acquaintance with uh, the object of our investigation. So, we have a teaching that is bequeathed by a physician or a surgeon or a therapist, that teaching is not so much a teaching of truth, but an appeal that we approach what we experience in a particular frame or in a, in a four-pronged approach. And that is something we cannot resolve by believing. That is something we can only uh, resolve by actually applying ourselves to this. Now, this uh, applying uh, application is different. Yeah? and it has different challenges. The challenge in the first one is probably our resistance. We would like to believe that this is a good world, things turn out nice at the end, and if we do all things right, then we don't suffer. You know? In other words, if I am perfectly mindful, if I'm perfectly moral, if I associate with the right sort of people, uh, if I go to the right places, then I don't suffer. Unfortunately, uh, we cannot really deliver that. This is not the truth. 
Uh, I know we don't like to write that on our brochures, but this is not the truth. We, you can be meditating perfectly, you can be mindful perfectly, and you will still have digestive problems, you will still get wrinkles, and you will still die at the end of it. Uh, even the Buddha, who was famous for being a good meditator, and he can't be more enlightened than him, he still died at the end of it. He still had uh, back problems, we know that. He says, Sariputta, you give the talk. I, have, I, I lean against the pillar. Uh, and he died quite... Uh, uh, his last stage was quite painful. It was fraught with weakness, and we believe uh, it was a, an illness that um, was unpleasant that finally uh, brought his demise. And we can say that he, uh, if you believe uh, in traditional Buddhist accounts, then he didn't just die, he actually um, entered Parinibbana, which is a, a complicated term to say that he did not take birth anymore, so he did not reassemble his khandhas, thereby uh, making himself prone to further suffering in a future life. But still, the process, as far as humans have witnessed it and have brought it down in history to us, tells us that the man was ill, and he was wandering, uh, and he was so weak that he couldn't continue. And there weren't that many people around him at that, uh, at that time for complicated reasons. Uh, but it is obvious that he suffered, his body suffered. However uh, placid his mind was with this, uh, his body experienced pain. So we know, even if we do everything right, there will still be pain. This is sobering, isn't it? This is not what I like to hear. This is not what I like to tell you, in fact. I would love to sell you something else. Yeah? Do everything right and you'll be enlightened. You'll be fine. Um, do everything right and you'll be enlightened. I have no doubts about this personally, but uh, there is no guarantee that there isn't some pain uh, lingering. Yeah? You may have no more resistance against it. You may not have any other expectations, but it still may be painful. It still may be difficult getting up in the morning, more difficult than it was 50 years ago or so. What are we to do with such a teaching? We are called to engage with it. The engagement, I said in the first truth, is overcoming our resistance, overcoming our blue-eyed approaches to uh, the existential givens of our life, overcoming um, our resistance also to take responsibility for our own suffering and for the suffering of others in our lives, of the beings close to us, and maybe not so close, the suffering that comes uh, from our carelessness. So this teaching calls us into a responsibility, an engagement. Don't shy away from this, don't chicken out, and acknowledge that we have power and we have responsibility. Power always comes with responsibility. Understanding always comes responsibility. There are no cheap insights. There are no insights that do not make us more responsible for what's happening in the own heart, what's happening around us, what's happening on this planet. The Buddhist term for meditation, bhavana, has four segments. I, I don't hear that enough, so let me just say that tonight as a sort of footnote. 
The first segment is kaya bhavana. This is the cultivation of our own physical demeanor, and it is our relationship to the physical planet yeah, at the farthest end of the spectrum. This is our relationship to Gaia, to the planet, to the physical environment we inhabit. That's one aspect of bhavana, one aspect of meditation. The next aspect is sila bhavana, which has to do with our social context. It is to do with our own ethical demeanor, but it has also to do with our whole relationship to the social aspect of our world. This is, by now, seven billion people. It's quite a handful, unruly folk, uh, happily propagating and uh, full of all kinds of contradictory desires. A difficult task living up to developing our social relationships if we start to take this really serious in a big way. The third type of bhavana, that's where we get closer to our familiar notion of meditation, is citta bhavana, which means primarily stilling the mind. Stilling the mind and developing the brahma-viharas. Love, loving-kindness, friendliness, compassion, Trembling with others, as the old word for compassion says, anukampati, trembling with others. Um, joy, sympathetic joy when it is the good that we recognize in others, and joy, plain joy, when it is the good we recognize in ourselves. And equanimity, serenity, as the fourth of these Brahmaviharas. This is the development that is spoken of in the third segment of the Bhavana, Chitta Bhavana. And then the fourth is Panya Bhavana, is the cultivation or the development of wisdom. That's where Vipassana practice comes in. That's where skills like reflection come in, like um, recollection comes in. That's where investigation, inquiry comes in. That's where Fathoming comes in as a translation of Yonisomana Sikara. So these are the things to be developed. This is what the Buddha meant when he spoke of bhavana, what we happily translate as meditation, and thereby mean we sit on a cushion with eyes closed. His project for that meditation was rather more large than we make ourselves believe sometimes. So there may be a time when we have to leave meditation halls and see what what Buddhism looks like as a political philosophy, or what Buddhism looks like as social engagement. Right now, we're going back to the four truths, and we're looking at what is the challenge at the second truth. The challenge at the second truth, the resistance in the second truth, is that we are lazy. We would like to point to the fact when we have succeeded in fulfilling our desire and say, look, it works. If I have the right desire, if I have the right technique, I get it where I like it. You know, Sangsara can be managed. It's not a problem. It's just a matter of getting your expectations down to about 80%, becoming more skilled, you know, and then gently easing the bait off the hook, you know, and all is well. So the challenge with the second uh, of this truth is that we look closely, that we don't flinch, that we open ourselves to the full tragedy of desire. Yeah. 
a desire that is a type of tension that we on one hand want because we feel alive when we feel it we feel the promise of its gratification and we so often feel the frustration if we can't gratify it we feel the weariness if we have managed enough times to gratify it or the disappointment when we manage to gratify it and know that we have not really obtained what we were looking or longing for. Yeah. So that, the resistance in the second of the truth is that we try not to see clearly. Yeah. One of the kicks about desire, any sort of desire, is that we get a little fudgy around the edges, that we lose the crispness of the contour. Yeah. There is something of a blur taking place whenever desire kicks in. And that is one of the fascinations of desire. You know? We feel alive, it moves, uh, I get somewhere, it feels good. And what feels good can't be wrong. Yeah. So there is, it takes generally some time and some sobriety and some very profound deepening of our gaze, deepening of getting in touch with what we really want before we start to acknowledge that this world may really hold more pain than happiness or gratification when we tread the path of desire. Yeah. The challenge with the third of the teachings is that we don't want to see it. We don't acknowledge it. We believe, well, this is for religious people, you know. Maybe when I was, when I was, would I have been born at the Buddhist time? Yeah, he would have fixed me. But right now, this is a Dharma ending age. Chances are bad. I need to just, you know, do as good as it gets and then muddle through from there and hope for the best. So I can't really expect complete cessation, complete arrest of that which is pain in the world is unlikely. The stilling of both the tension of desire and longing and the pain these create, I can, it's unlikely that I, can, that, I, that I have a chance to get there. The best I can do is palliative care. Yeah? I can modulate down, I can learn a few tricks. So don't give me promises. There's something in us that is wary of taking on board the possibility of true happiness, the possibility of true, the seizing of that which creates pain. Yeah. Most of us experience pain probably as loss. You know, in terms of Buddhist teaching, most of our pain, most of the pain in my heart and most of the pain in the hearts of people I meet um, is a mixture of emotional and existential pain. Yeah. So we, the possibility of actually <coughs> acknowledging that the, there is a way out of most of that pain, except, say, the back pain I was referring to in the Buddha's <laughs> own life, but most of our pain, that most of our pain can actually cease in this life, not just in the next life when we don't get reborn after we've done everything right, you know, ticked all the boxes. Uh, 
it's quite a daunting prospect because once we acknowledge this possibility, the question immediately follows, why am I not doing the stuff that takes me there? You know? So it's sometimes easier to say, well, it's probably not possible, so that saves me even bothering with trying. So the challenge with the third of the truth is that we don't actually want to let it really close that we could be completely happy, that we could be really free. Yeah? That good enough is not freedom, that there is something beyond good enough yeah? or manageable or I, I can cope. Yeah? The challenge with the fourth <clears throat> is that we despair, we try, we have expectations, we like to tread that path we have maybe people we admire, people we feel we envy, or we feel inspired by. But then we meet difficulties. We meet the challenges of our own, you know, the tenacity of our own uh, ignorance or greed or anger. Or simply, it takes longer. You know, I was expecting this to be over when I finish my retreat, and when I finish my retreat, I realize it only just starts. So the challenge with the fourth of the big teachings is that we need to have a long breath. We We need to be in for the long haul. This isn't the weekend exercise. The Buddha's vision of freedom isn't something we could just snap into with a trick. So, developing the path means meeting resistance, meeting challenges, meeting one's own ignorance. And um, that challenge uh, can be attenuated or can be helped by by, uh, having friends. It can be helped by a few odd Buddhist teachings uh, called skill and means or skillful means. Uh, this is a, a teaching that is um, most famously uh, found in the later Indian Buddhism, but in fact it's already there. I uh, like to make a claim here that this is uh, noted, that this is right there in the Pali Canon. The teachings of Upaya, of skill and means, is both implicitly there and explicitly as terms. I can, I can point, it, point it out to you if, I, if you were curious enough. So this is not an invention of later Buddhism. It's right there in uh, the Buddha's uh, earliest text. Upayas have to do with something that is not absolutely true, but that is useful to deepen our understanding, or that is useful to give us skills. One such skill in reference to the four truth is um, the asking question. One big skill which I would like to be more famous for is something called Yoniso Manasikara in early Buddhism. I think this is one of the real contributions of early Buddhist teachings to uh, civilization, in fact. Um, it's an interesting term. Yoni is the womb, more specifically, it is the uterus, and from there it has taken the metaphoric meaning of origin. That's where things start. That's where things begin. That's where things take their, uh, that's where they begin their career. So manas is the mind. Karoti means to make. Manas, manasikara is attention. 
or the capacity of the mind to attend. And Dioniso, the grammatical construction, is an ablative, means, means from there. Yeah? So it's a type of mental paying attention from the where things begin, from where things take their origin. Yeah? The old meaning of the word radical, yeah? radix, from the root onwards, uh, comes maybe close to that uh, notion of Yoniso Manasikara. So, how do we translate that in a more mm, short form? I, I, it's, the word means an attitude of mind, an application of mind that probes the depth of something, yeah, that fathoms the ground of something. It's not a technique, it's not methodical thinking, it's not just systematic reflection, it's an attitude. It's like, if you dig out a little plant, you don't just pull up the stem and think the roots come along and that's good enough. You lose half of the roots by doing that. So what you do is you dig around, yeah? you take a little ball of earth around where you think the roots are. And this kind of movement, a kind of prudent but um, decisive movement to kind of dig it out. This, I think, is a good analogy for this Yoniso Manasikara attitude. Now, this Yoniso Manasikara attitude of investigation or of fathoming, we can do with the four truths. We can do. In the first, this would probably sound something like what right now I have, there is a promise that I can be completely happy, completely free, and ecstatically blissful. Um, what stops me from being that way right now? If I ask you, are you suffering right now? You know, you may say, well, I'm not suffering. It's okay. It's warm enough. It's safe enough. I've had something to eat. I know where I go and sleep tonight. Uh, nobody's hurting me. So I'm not really suffering. If I was asking you this in a Buddhist sort of way, then um, I would ask that that which right now stops you from being completely and ecstatically blissful, happy, content, free, that which stops you from being in such a way, that is suffering. The discrepancy from where you are now to complete freedom, complete happiness, complete contentment, complete <coughs> understanding, that is already suffering. So our first question with Yonisomana Sikara, with uh, fathoming our condition, would be something like, if I c could be completely happy, free, and understanding everything, what actually is between me and that complete freedom, complete understanding, complete contentment, right now? Yeah. What is in my mind? What do I feel I need to resolve, fix, get rid of? hold on to, overcome, work through, what is this? Yeah. That is the dukkha. That is my particular dukkha job. If I was to apply a question with Yonisa Manasikara in, along the lines of the second of those truths, I would ask something like, that which I have found stops me from being completely awake and completely content and completely happy what does that hinge on? 
What is it predicated upon? What, uh, what is the expectation? So I would need to ask that which I have identified with my first question as stopping me from being really complete. Does that have a precondition? What, does it, what makes it arise? What does it stand on? What is its foundation? My wants, my needs, my beliefs, my expectations, uh, my responsibilities, yeah. all kinds of things. Obviously, this has to be done specifically. Um, you can't do that generally. If I was going to take the question further to the third of the truth, then I would have to say, well, what I have found in my second question, can this be given up? Can this be let go of? Do I want to let go of? You, know, you may find that some things you don't want to let go of. Obviously, this is not what Buddhists tell you uh, you should do, but basically you honestly turn inwards and you find something in you says, no, I don't let go of this. No way. Yeah. Off limits. This one is not negotiable. You may find such things. You know, better to know that. This is not textbook Buddhist practice, but still, it's better to know if it's the case. When you have decided that you don't let go of something, you're obviously going to pay the price for that, but you're more likely to pay that price uh, gracefully if you have made a choice and if you made a conscious choice. If you haven't made a conscious choice, you will feel like a victim. You will feel uh, something is cheated. They haven't shown me the small print on this one, so I've been railroaded into this one. And you will feel more identified with being a loser or a victim or being... Uh, you know, frog marched into something. There may be things that come up and you say, I'm not going to let go of. I'm not willing to abandon this. I'm not willing. I'm willing to pay the price for this. If you notice that the pain is bigger than what you expect as happiness, you probably are willing to let go of. <laughs> you stop fortifying it. It may still creep up on you, Attachments, you can let go of attachments quite a few times and they kind of sneak up on you again after you've heroically kind of let go a couple of times. You know, public letting go is particularly effective. <laughs> but then it kind of privately sneaks back up on you. So some things you need to let go of quite a lot of times. So the question is a stark one, isn't it? Can I let go of this? Can I imagine doing something that does not keep this particular trait of mind in being? Or is this too threatening? Can I let go a little bit? Ajahn Chah, you know, if you let go a little, you're a little more free. If you let go a lot, you're a lot more free. If you let go completely, you're completely free. Sums it up, you know, in his, in his uh, tremendous economy in his teachings. The questions uh, with Yoniso Manasikara along the fourth of uh, the Buddhist uh, Aryasachas would be something like, um, what do I need to do to develop? What, what is lacking? 
what is good already and can be reinforced or strengthened. Um, what do I specifically need to starve in my patterning? What are the things that I need to cultivate? It would probably some be a question like, where do I feel truly content? Where in my life do I come closest to contentment? With whom? By doing what? In what situation have I f come closest to contentment? What does fill me with self-respect and with respect for others? How can I make a difference? Yeah. How can I channel these energies that are available, mental, emotional, physical, energetic? How can I channel these energies in ways that make this a better place? I trust that you, when asking such questions, carefully, soberly, and honestly to yourself, you will also make use of some of the information that comes down through Buddhist teachings. But the Buddhist teachings alone won't do it. What will do it is you engaging with those teachings. What will do it is you being willing to translate strange teachings that come down from another culture and another tradition and maybe framed in concepts and in a language that is not yours, that you make the effort to translate that somehow into your life and that you're willing to do the work to do that translation. I'm not speaking of translating texts. I'm speaking of another translation. We have started, we've done a good job at translating English. You particularly privileged, you're the farthest with translating these teachings than uh, any other language I am familiar with. But I'm not speaking of translation of text. I'm speaking of the translation of what these texts say and what these texts mean into the language of your own experience, into the language of the way you think about yourself. That type of translation no text can do. Nobody can do it out there. The only people who can do it is us, is we as individuals to acquaint ourselves with these teachings, with their meaning, and then we tease out the value of that meaning and try to apply, to engage with it. That sometimes may be inspired, sometimes it may just be hard work, sometimes it may make immediate sense, we feel validated by something we encounter in and teaching. Sometimes it may be bewildering, we may meet things in there that we just don't know where to put, yeah? things we feel we can't believe, and yet we can't actually verify from our own experience. That kind of willingness is necessary to ask those questions and to, I think, make use of the medicine of those four truths. Rather than just leave them as statements, I as a good Buddhist believe, card-carrying member of the Buddhist uh, outfit, I believe in the four truths. Yeah. And I hope that by believing so, they make me a better person and at the end it hurts less. Yeah. That's not what the intention of these teachings were. Um, 
as a little proof of this, I just want to flag. Um, there is a teaching in the early middle length sayings where the four, the pattern of the four truths, you know, is also applied not to dukkha, but it is applied to nutrients. So the approach is applied to the arising of nutrients, to the cessation of nutrients, and to the way leading out of nutrients, yeah? the aharas, which for those of you who uh, read text or who are interested, it's in the Samaditi Sutta, the very pattern we know from the four noble truths yeah, is applied to another key uh, psychological ingredient in uh, development in Buddhist psychology, which is called ahara, about which I will not say anything anymore tonight. Uh, uh, but you can see the application of what I have just tried to uh, explain to you on another topic. Yeah. So we cannot think of these of the teaching of the four truths as specific propositions or simply capital T truth. But we have to understand that this is an approach and that approach consists of different appeals. All these appeals call for a particular type of attitude and action that gently varies from acknowledgement in the first truth to uh, sober inquiry in the second truth to the admission of the possibility of liberation in the third and the practical steps leading us on the path uh, consisting of the force. So I'd like to offer that to you tonight and uh, hope to stimulate your own inquiries, your own questioning and your own wise reflection. Yeah. So please don't leave it at that. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.